Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and of course, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. As you know, if you have been paying attention, which I know you have, you have observed that I am slightly obsessed with ChatGPT. I just love it so much. I don't know why I'm obsessed. I go on it all the time. I pay so that I can use ChatGPT4. I've been using it, probably not that effectively, but it is a topic that I just find endlessly interesting. I also have just been wondering, you know, what does it mean, right, for our world? And so we're gonna be talking about that a lot in the coming months. It's just gonna be an ongoing recurring theme. So if you love the conversation, Tell me about it, what your thoughts are. Tell me who I should have on the show. You can reach out to me at Let's Connect at PatrickMcGinnis.com on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, all those places. I'm I'm here for the conversation. Today, we're gonna be talking to a really interesting guy who we actually had on the show before. Uh, let's think about this now. It was a couple years back on a phone Mondays. We were talking about how one could imbue a company culture with ethics when we were talking about super coffee because this guy, whose name is Reed Blackman, had been the college professor of the founder of super coffee, Jimmy DeSico. And so Jimmy brought him in to sort of like debro the culture of super coffee. And it was a really great story. So I have known Reed and we had kind of lost touch because of the pandemic. We reconnected and as we chatted, I thought to myself, gotta have you come on and talk about I guess the ethics of AI is what we're hitting. It's a pretty big topic. We're not going to get through it all today, but we'll start the conversation. Now, Reed Blackman, PhD, is the author of Ethical Machines, which was published by Harvard Business Review Press. He's also the creator and host of the podcast Ethical Machines and founder and CEO of Virtue, a digital ethical risk consultancy. He's an advisor to the Canadian government on their federal AI regulation and was a founding member of EY's advisory board on AI and a senior advisor to the Deloitte AI Institute, now, prior to founding Virtue, he was a professor of philosophy at Colgate and at UNC Chapel Hill. Today, we're going to be getting into just what is going on out there. What I want to give you, what I'm hoping you will learn, is a way to think about the frameworks of AI in terms of the ethical parts of the business world and, you know, the world at large, because we're all going to be encountering this. Every job, well, not every job, I mean, if you are doing something like cutting down trees, probably not going to be doing a lot of AI there. So you are safe. But the rest of us, like I'm amazed just thinking about the companies that I like and use and, you know, 
just kind of are part of my life, which of those are going to be gone? And I was in a board meeting recently for a company that I'm involved with. That was the big hot topic of the board meeting. Like, how will AI change what we do? What must we do? And part of it is the hype that I've been talking about. It's the FOMO, right? But part of it is real. And we need to understand this. And we have to have a handle on the ethical parts of the equation. So that's what we're going to do. Now, what is my small ask? Well, again, I do want to point you to my website, FOMOSapiens.com, where you can check out the FOMO shop. But more than that, you can also check out the back catalog. We have all of our shows there. So, you know, you can go find Reed's show when he talked about ethics and bro culture or many other shows. So go check that out. Let me know what you think of the website. What would you like me to add? I'm an open door here. Okay. Reach out to me and let me know. All right. And now it is time to move on to the conversation. And as you know, I'd like to start every interview with the same question. And the question is this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? Well, I suppose, you know, I made a massive decision to leave academia and start this business that I did. Um, I had been training my entire life to be a philosophy professor, to be a philosopher or researcher, a writer on all things philosophy or especially ethics. You know, I went to undergraduate school. I took 17, 18, 19 courses in philosophy. I went to graduate school, got a PhD, spent 10 years as a professor of philosophy, and then at one point had a conversation with myself, should I stay in academia or should I leave and go do this thing? And I decided to go do this thing. How'd you decide? You know, I had it, I remember it quite distinctly. I was driving from my apartment in Brooklyn to JFK mm. because I was going to get my global entry, whatever thing. Mm -hmm. And I just said, you know what? I, I need to just think through this. And so I was literally talking out loud in the car, you know, having a conversation with myself. And there were all these factors that just said, all right, look, it just makes sense at this point to leave academia. So it was like this. I got tired of writing phenomenally obscure journal articles that, you know, a handful of people would read. I, I love philosophy and I love the research, but I found that 10% of writing an article was really, really interesting while I tried to figure out exactly what do I want to say, how do I want to phrase it, et cetera. Whereas, the, and then the remaining 90% was playing defense against imaginary but soon to be real pedantic blind reviewers. Mm. Uh, I didn't like my department. I did like my department, but my two closest friends had gotten denied tenure, so they left. So there was no, I had no good friends really left there. Maybe I had one decent friend left. Um, there was no real intellectual community in that department, in that philosophy department anymore which is what I sort of wanted. That's one of the reasons I sort of, as it were, signed up to be a philosopher in the first place. So, the, you know, the, the professors that remained, they either didn't do research or they did research behind their closed office door. So I was essentially a teacher in the middle of nowhere writing articles for, you know, a phenomenally tiny audience that I found generally fascinating, but 90% of the time was spent really just trying, spending, I was spending that time trying to satisfy those blind reviewers. You couple that with, it's, I was at Colgate University. It's frankly in the middle of nowhere, about four hours outside of New York City. I'm not a country person. I'm a city person. My wife is more of a city person than a country person. Her career has always been Manhattan-based. And it would, it's not clear if, if we had stayed there how she would continue her career. And it's, a, it's an impressive career. And we had one kid already. We were going back and forth. We had another kid on the way. The back and forth wasn't going to be sustainable anymore. And so it just seemed like this is – oh, and then the biggest – maybe the biggest point is I had this idea for an ethics consultancy for probably, I don't know, four or five years before this point and didn't do anything because they didn't see a market for it. But at, a, at around this time – 
This was 2017, 2018. We got Me Too and Black Lives Matter, uh, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, somehow I heard the engineers ringing alarm bells around um, artificial intelligence. And so you just put all that stuff into a mix, and frankly, the decision was easy. It was just sort of like all signs point to leaving academia and giving this thing a go. Wow. Okay, so now, now that you've done that, it is – and by the way, I think, you know – the old days of just sort of like the kind of plush academia life doesn't feel like it's there anymore. So it's very understandable. You sort of enter into the, it's like so many other careers where you have this pathway that looks so great from the outside. But once you're in it, you're like, oh, my goodness, this is not what I was promised. And so you move and which is great. That's entrepreneurial thinking. Now, how does that, you know, roll into like what what would you describe yourself as today? Like, what is it that you do? So I advise government and corporations on how not to ethically screw up using artificial intelligence and other technologies. Okay. And who do those look like? Is this is, these, is this large corporations, small corporations, big tech, little tech, non-tech? Like <laughs> how, how does that look? Yeah, it's 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 one one client is the government of Canada, and I advise them on their federal AI regulations. Yeah. Most clients are multinationals, um, enterprise. So I sat on EY's AI advisory board. I was an advisor to Deloitte's AI Institute, um, U.S. Bank, Anglo-American, Comcast, um, I don't know, some others as well. But, you know, Fortune 500, Global 1000 kinds of companies. So this must be like Christmas for you because right now it's like, you know, the metaverse is gone. Nobody cares about NFTs. Crypto <laughs> yeah. is dead. AI is on everybody's lips including yeah. mine. Everybody who listens to the show knows that I've been talking about it a lot. And so, you know, it is just, it's, it's the moment. Did you, did you know this was coming or are you even surprised by how hot AI is right now? Um, I'm hard to surprise. I mean, you know, I said that in 2018, I was, I, I heard the alarm bells by the engineers. Mm -hmm. And when I started the business, I thought, um, it's going to be a while till this stuff becomes relevant, probably about five years until I can have a business that's just around tech ethics. And it's been five years, and here we are. So I was wrong in one respect, which is that I, you know, I've worked with clients well before up until now. And so there were a bunch of clients that I did AI, AI ethics work with prior to this. But this is clearly, it's, it's, we're at peak awareness of the problem, for sure. Do, do you feel it? Do you, did the number of just like people knocking on your door, just go through the roof in the last six months? Have you had those kind of experiences? Yeah, that's fair to say, um, both from the client side, but also especially the news media. So I've been doing a mm. bunch of, uh, not a bunch, that's an exaggeration, three, four TV spots lately um, with like Fox News and BBC News, that, that kind of, you know, that kind of, I wouldn't call it work, but that kind of attention has, has certainly increased over the past bit. Um, first, when I came out with my book, that that massively increased a bunch of things, um, both clients and speaking engagements. And then this stuff has then catapulted me again. So it's nice. That's good. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's good when you work at something and you're in your well positioned and then it hits. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. 
Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. Now, I do want to talk about, so I, I had this really clever idea, which was to ask ChatGPT about you and what it would say. And sure. it, just, it said nice things. Like, it said all the things you'd expect. So there's really nothing interesting to say. I also tried to get it to ask some really clever questions. But frankly, good old ChatGPT4, which I was using, the questions mm. were so generic. So I got to yeah. tell you, really a fail there. I expect, Maybe it's just I don't know how to prompt. But... So I failed at that, but let's get into, you know, first of all, I just want your big picture take. Okay, so people are freaking out. Everybody's freaking out. You have people uh, like Henry Kissinger writing in the New York Times, like, oh my God, the world's going to change. You've got like tech leaders writing letters. People are losing their S-H asterisk T. Are people overreacting? That's my first question. They are overreacting, yes. Look, they, they, they ought to be concerned, but they're concerned for the wrong reasons. Okay. So, kill robots. Don't worry about the kill robots. The Terminator, sentient, intelligent. Forget it. That's not that's not what we've got here. The, the issue is not how are the robots going to kill us. It's how are people going to use this new powerful tool to screw up society even more. That's that's the big that's the big issue. So to give you just a couple of examples, one is this has been brought up by many people. It's so easy now to generate and scale uh, misinformation, hmm. right? You could just tell to create all sorts of tales, and it will weave those it will weave those tales. So that's a big problem. Another big problem, and I was just having a really interesting conversation with this with a guy named Louis Rosenberg. Um, it's it's um, there's a big risk of manipulation at scale. So you know, you think, you know, right now you talk to chatbots online or whatever, and they're pretty stupid, but they're going to get really smart. They're going to get equipped with this kind of stuff. They're going to be better than the best salesman. They're going to be able to read your um, texts for emotion. They might, you know, in principle anyway, you could turn on the camera and it can read your facial expressions, right? And do um, sentiment analysis on your facial expressions. So its ability to track what we're saying, to, under, you know, quote unquote, understand what we're saying, revise, if you like, its sales pitch in light of that is going to massively increase. So you're going to have these highly manipulative chatbots. You don't know what their intentions are. Not not always anyway. And so it's, it's, that's, that's pretty scary, especially when you think that, you know, it's going to be interacting with children. They have no idea <laughs> what to look out for. Yeah, if you think about it, you know, one thing that I, I've i come to believe, and I, I don't think this is like super brainy, but it's like chatbots are not designed to be factual per se. They're designed to be convincing. And when you read them, they have incredible authority. Like when you, you're chatting with GPT or whatever, it's like, they you know, it's very sure of itself. And I have a friend 
who um, I was looking into this person and it had said that this person was dead, which I, I know the person's not dead because we were chatting at the phone at the time. And then I said, you know, how do you have proof that this person's dead? And they said, well, these major media outlets have reported on it. And I said, please give me the links. And it sent me links, which led to no nowhere. But I was sort of like, wow, like if, you know, I can see how that sows down. You're like, well, is this really, a, is he really alive or not? Even though you're talking to the guy. So that is kind of wild, the convincingness of all of this stuff. Yeah, it is. It, it is very confident. It, it also makes things up all the time. It would, mm. it would, it would, it would, it seems that, you know, if to, you can't actually impute desires to it, but to the extent that you can, you would say it would prefer to lie than to say, I don't know. Uh, so yeah, there's, it's a big problem. And most people are not particularly diligent in figuring out, is this actually true? You just take the answer and you run with it. That's, that's how most people operate. So yeah, it's, it's crazy stuff. It's really crazy stuff. So, so Reed, okay. All that said, like, when are we going to really see this though? Because we, everybody's talking about it, right? It's, it's sort of like an abstract thing that we're going to, we expect big changes, but how quickly do you think there's going to be a major world event that's going to be shaped by this? This is like next month or is this next three years? How do you, how do you see that playing out? I mean, look, anyone who tells you that they know the answer to that is lying. Mm -hmm. Obviously we don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's all empirical speculation. I will say every, you know, the big tech companies are all coming out with their own large language models. We have chat GPT four now, obviously they're working on five and then six is going to come. So they're working on these things. Stanford recreated a version of a large language model of uh, a version of chat GPT for something like under $600. They made it open source. Now other people can grab that model and tweak it in various ways. 24 last I saw, uh, as of like April, April 2nd of this year, 2,400 people had downloaded that open source model to do their own tweaking. So it's not just that we have, the reason why I think it's going to accelerate is not only because of the billions of dollars being poured into it by big tech, but also because it's in the hands of, you know, data scientists, creators, amateur data scientists around the world already. So we're just going to, it's, it, I can't see how it doesn't scale quickly. And given that there are virtually, not even virtually, just, there aren't guardrails around these things, legally speaking, it's a, it's going to be a free for all. Plus everyone, you know, everyone smells money, right? Everyone smells, oh my God, we could think about the use cases, the applications that we can make and we can sell. And so, yeah, I, I would expect things to go fairly fast. So I don't know how fast, but even if it's two years, right? If we, if we snap, snapped forward to two years from now, mm. I'd have to imagine that by then we would be pretty shocked at what's going on. Yeah, just in time for our election now in the United States. Now, <laughs> now I, I want to ask you, so one thing that's kind of made me laugh a little bit in a scared way is watching these large tech players throw the technology into the hands of users without really kind of knowing what's going to happen. And then crazy things happen. You know, like there was that whole story in the New York Times about Kevin Roos, who's a columnist there, having this, this you know, G, this chatbot saying it loved him, Sydney or whatever. You've had other examples of that, even in their own like sort of launch events, having factually incorrect information. I think that happened at the Bard launch with Google. And so I have been telling my, you know, different journalists and friends, because I want somebody to write an article about it. I'm like, this is, this is like where you get that. You write, people want to make a lot of money why they have FOMO. They want to be first. And so therefore they're going to cut corners to get product to market. And in my, in my opinion, that is unethical, but you are the ethicist. So talk about the ethics of putting products into users' hands and trying to, you know, sort of be, 
be, be, you know, early to the market when this technology is evolving so quickly. So I know you want someone to write an article about it. I don't know if it's good or bad news, but someone did. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. Oh, yeah, I read your article. That's right. When I read it, now, yeah, when I read the article, I was like, read, wrote my article. That's why, yeah, that's why I called you. Sorry, I just flicked. Okay, wow. Okay, keep going. So I wrote an article in the New York Times um, and arguing exactly this, that, look, Microsoft rolled out uh, ChatGPT, its version of ChatGPT. It rolled out Bing, which we learned later was ChatGPT4, mm-hmm. and They did this, in my estimation, in violation of their own, what they call responsible AI principles, their Mm -hmm. AI ethics principles. They've got six of them. I think they violated five of those six. Now, on the one hand, I want to sort of, if you like, chastise them. They did the wrong, I think they did the wrong thing. I think, you know, the point that you're making that they're just putting it in the hands of millions of users and seeing what's going to happen. I think that's dangerous and stupid and unethical. It's clearly what they did. And then I say, but I sort of at the end of the article and and I got a little bit of pushback about this. I was a little bit easy on them because I said, but what do you expect them to do in a way? The rules of the game are who's going to get there first is going to make a lot more money. And they are trying to stay desperately relevant in search, trying to make Bing relevant, um, trying to compete against Google. And so what are they going to do? They're going to come out with their large language model and their uh, LLM powered search engine first because they got to be in the marketplace and the sooner the better they could wait but then Google comes in first or some other third party comes in and they and they've lost that competitive advantage that's the rules of the market now if you want it to be safer then you need to change the rules of the game you need to change the rules of the marketplace and that's what regulation is for so i do think that they violated their principles i think that what they did was unethical i think that We can't, you know, we could hope that companies rise above the fray and do the right thing. And even if Microsoft did the right thing, someone else wouldn't. Hope that companies will self-regulate is a hopeless strategy at scale, even if it's hopeful for one particular company. So we need a regulation if you're actually going to get things safe. FOMO. FOMO. One thing that I kind of wonder you know, you know these people. You you talk to the people who are developing the technology, and you also talk to the the regulators and the you know like the sort of like executive people who aren't the quote unquote. They're not like the ones who are doing the the actual development of the algorithms and the code and all that sort of stuff, right? It's like if you think about it, yes, of course, this is like th- there's a lot of tech here, but there are people who are the visionaries, the dreamers who are creating technology. And I wonder, you know, like when you think about those people, you know, when with so many new tech products, the people who are developing the core tech, they have sort of an ethos. They have an ideology around them. And so they sort of believe that what they're doing isn't just about making money. It's like it's about it's, there's there's something deeper. And then you kind of so I'm curious, like, what are the who are these people who are leading this front? And what happens when you throw them in the room with the money people? I mean, when you're saying, you know, I, I don't, it's not like I've talked to Sam Altman. I don't know, I don't know the mm. guy. They, I was going to say Sam should call you, but anyway, keep going. Y- yeah, but people call me when they think that maybe there's some trouble and, and they think that they're doing the Lord's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they think that they're we're like devel- the whistleblowers or something. Yeah, they they say that their mission is to is to 
understand and push forward AGI in a response, artificial general intelligence. Uh-huh. That's what they think that they're doing. They're not, but that's what they think they're doing um, in a responsible way to, to make sure that it benefits all of humanity. But it's not, it's not true. It's not what's actually going on. Um, look, these are mostly technologists and they may be brilliant technologists, but being a brilliant technologist doesn't make you good at governance. Mm-hmm. doesn't make you a good understander of what good regulation looks like or what control looks like or what being ethically responsible looks like. So I, I don't, you know, I think that me, at best, my best, you know, my most, if you like, my most charitable interpretation mm-hmm. is that they intend the right thing, but they don't really know how to do the right thing. And, I, you know, one thing I want to I flag um, is after I wrote that article, there were people from both Microsoft and Google who were sort of more on the policy side mm. emailed me or messaged me and said, you know, thank you for writing that. Things here are going too fast. We're trying to slow things down, but we can't, blah, 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 blah. So these were obviously more junior people. These weren't senior executives, but they were people in the policy or responsible AI space within their respective companies reaching out to me to say, this is too fast from our perspective. So there, I think that there is internal... Um, a lack of t- – there's presence of tension, lack of alignment, whatever. But, you know, senior execs, I think, see dollar signs. So, Reed, I'm going to give you a, a promotion. I'm going to make you um, – I'm going to create a new role, which is called the Universal Head of AI Ethics for the Global World. I'm, I'm, I'm honored. I'm overjoyed. You've done a great job, and I think you should do that. And I want to ask you what you're going to do with that, you know, weighty – Title. What are you? What are you? What what are you going to put into place to make sure that things go right? I'm going to need more than a title. I'm going to need a magic wand. Okay. <laughs> right? The title's not going to do it. Y- you know, um, we need certain kinds of regulations. I don't think there's a question about that. I mean, look, if it were, if if you're saying, look, you've got this actual political position, then you'd have to get the heads of this and the, that together, and the heads of states and the heads of companies, and and you'd have to hammer out decent regulation. Um, it's the kind of thing that I mentioned that I'm helping. Um, I've I've helped Canada do to some extent. I'm not saying I'm, I'm by far not the only one, but I'm you know pitching in, mm-hmm. and um, and then you start passing regulation that actually safeguards people. I mean, and we're not talking about. You know, I, I like to stress the thing that we need to focus on is ethical nightmares. Sometimes people talk about AI ethics and they think, oh, you want to you know, make sure everything is safe and nothing has edges or, or you know, you want to hamper innovation. And, and, and I always say I'm not – for one, there's an, a sense in which I do want to hamper innovation. There's innovation that's really ethically bad. Um, the atom bomb was innovative. I'm not sure it was great. <laughs> but the other thing is I think that we need to focus on what our ethical nightmares are. And we need to systematically regulate against or regulate in a way that massively decreases the likelihood of those ethical nightmares becoming a reality. So, for instance, I think that we need, you know, something like regulation against allowing companies to run sentiment analysis on our text uh, and then changing the, re- the response of the chatbot in light of that in order to sell us things, including, say, political beliefs. That's that stuff is scary. I don't think you know. So the EU is working on regulations. They are targeting high risk AI, which is the right thing to do. We need to focus on the high risk stuff, the ethical nightmares. I mean, think about all the nightmares that social media wrought. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's helped genocide. It's helped create uh, not create, but at least increase scale uh, anxiety and depression among teens, especially especially teenage girls. Um, Political divisions, you know, spread of misinformation. These are these are really, really, really bad things, and we're we're 
you know, 20 years or so in trying desperately to undo it and we're failing, it's only going to get worse. So I think, you know, what do I focus on if I've got this magic title with some power? You know, we focus on let's identify our collective nightmares. And that's another thing to, to mention, by the way. I don't care if you're Patagonia or Hobby Lobby. Massive violation of citizen privacy is a bad thing for everyone. Um, I don't care if you're on the right or the left. Massively increasing depression among teenage girls, terrible. Um, genocide, terrible. Right. So this is not a political thing. There are collective ethical nightmares that we need to identify and mitigate. And we're going to have to use regulate. You know, there have to be regulations around this stuff with enforcement. Which, which unfortunately. <laughs> Like now that I say that, I'm like, hmm, we can't, I mean, it's like, we can't even figure out any, we have climate risk, we have social media. So if that is a solution, uh, you know, then I have a feeling we're all going to be seeing a lot of, of a free for all in the coming years. So read from an individual perspective, folks listening to this show who just, you know, want to get smarter and also be able to sort of think around corners. Like what should people be thinking about? What should they be consuming uh, in terms of media or information? Like how should people listening to this show right now be preparing themselves for this new frontier? So the first thing to say is I, I absolutely agree that I, I don't see how things don't go crazy sideways. Mm -hmm. It might not be 2023, 2024 maybe. Mm -hmm. Let's say I'm wrong. 2026, fine. That's still, that's still soon enough. And yeah. The, these, the thing to keep in mind that is that the, the bad things that happen, the really bad things, they happen at scale. That's the nature. It's not like, you know, this one guy got killed and he was innocent. Oh, that's bad. That's a tragedy. But we're talking about societal level disruption. Mm -hmm. that, I don't see how that doesn't happen. The other thing is that I, I am very much against, <laughs> it's going to sound funny, individual empowerment. You know, people say like, oh, we got to, you know, we got to be individually empowered. You have to be wise about your decisions, about, you know, what websites you use. That, forget that. That's never going to stop a societal-wide problem. It takes collective action that ultimately expresses itself through government action. So, yes, you could, as, a, as an individual, you can educate yourself so that you can wisely engage in that collective action. But a focus on what are the kinds of things that we need government to do in order to protect us. That, that's what needs to be the focus, not how each one of us can be sort of, you know, making sure that our privacy, my own privacy is protected or something along those lines. So I think we need concrete, here are the, you know, here are the proposals that we want, here are the regulations that we want. As for educating themselves, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of things. Obviously you could, you know, I could be self-promotional and say my book is meant to do exactly that. My podcast is meant to do exactly that. Um, but there's loads of other people writing books um, and articles on AI and other digital technologies that are worth reading. I thought the ethical algorithm was really good. It sort of bridges the divide between an academic book and a book for the public. So the ethical algorithm is a good book. It's written by technologists for technologists, but in a way that non-technologists can understand. So it's actually, they did a really good job. So everybody, if you want to learn more, you can check out Reed's work. He has a book and a podcast, both called Ethical Machines, where you can learn more about how he's thinking about the world and what's going on and how to think about the future. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Reed, for being here. Wish you best of luck and uh, keep us posted. Thanks, man. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. 
Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.